Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, welcome to Fever Dreams. Uh, my name's Will Summer. I'm a political reporter at The Daily Beast and the author of an upcoming book on QAnon for HarperCollins. And I'm Aswin Subtang, but please call me Swin. I'm a senior political reporter at The Daily Beast and co-author of the book Sinking in the Swamp. All right, here on Fever Dreams, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious and sometimes scary world of the American right as they continue to influence our politics. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, these grifters, and these influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. Welcome to Fever Dreams. I'm Will Summer, and I'm joined today by guest host Kelly Weil for one more week Kelly, you got one more week before Swin comes back. How are you planning to go out? Oh, it's great. I'm going to say something really inflammatory in the closing 30 seconds. So brace yourselves. Really salt the podcast. Good luck cleaning that up, Swin. Okay, so today for our first segment, last week we mentioned this James O'Keefe lawsuit where he's being sued over what the plaintiffs have characterized as political spying over one of his operatives infiltrating this Democratic organization. So this case, though, some of these records have started to spill out. And I have to say, like, these emails are so rude. I just have to share them as a follow-up. They kind of give you a a glimpse into the life at the mind of a James O'Keefe operative while they live amongst you. I have some friend at the Washington Post who is terrified that Project Veritas will go after her. And she's constantly like, is this person a Project Veritas person? But I can tell you they're not that effective, and I I wouldn't worry about them too much. And and I think these emails offer a glimpse. Shall we dive in, Kelly? Absolutely. Hit me. Great. So this is a person named Allison Moss. She was using this alias Angela Brandt to infiltrate this Democratic political group in 2016. She has this email where she just talks about how much she dislikes people. So she writes, I then went to the DNC so Jenna could show me how to use the program. An intern named Ross, who is probably the most clueless intern I have ever met, showed me how to use the program. So you have to imagine James O'Keefe is back at Castle Veritas, and he's looking at this, and he's like, okay, we've planted this intern for, I think, periods of months, at least weeks, in this group. Surely we're going to start really getting some damaging stuff. And then she's like, James, I do not want to sit with this guy in the cafeteria at all. I love it. It's like we sent in our top operative to like harass a college sophomore. We've got all the goods on him and that he was not adequately helped helpful to our needs. It's like, lay off. There's also a point where she she writes in an update, like, I guess she felt that she was getting sort of like sick of the job and that she wasn't getting new info. And I think she sort of had a feeling that once you get this job, they say, oh, and by the way, down the hall is the secrets closet. Don't go in there. So she had said she was like, I'm trying to get on another assignment because I'm not getting anything fresh. So I thought these emails offer an interesting glimpse into the day to day Project Veritas lifestyle. Oh, yeah. And that stuff should probably be coming out more in court, right? Since it was recently ruled that they are, might have to cough up. Yes. Tragically, the trial, which was set 
to start in early December. Last time we talked has been delayed because of the FBI raids on James O'Keefe. I hate when that happens. <laughs> and I think this is one of those things where it's like, on one hand, yes, his lawyers are like, we're a little busy. He got raided by the FBI or searched by the FBI, which I can't appreciate. But on the other hand, it's sort of like, I don't think you get to just double down. My alleged bad behavior is so bad, I now don't have to go to civil trial for a while. So it's certainly one to watch. And, and I do love these little intelligence reports. They're incredible. And speaking of people just juggling multiple lawsuits or legal issues is Steve Bannon, who escaped from last presidency with a pardon and went straight back into an indictment this weekend. He was indicted for not turning over January 6th documents. All right, Kelly. So you, I understand, have a new educational opportunity. You're thinking back and going of getting a master's at a new school popular with the intellectual dark web. Tell me about the University of Austin. Well, Will, have you ever wanted to go to a school where all the professors are pretty much just the most annoying sub stackers you can find? People who are doing 80 tweet threads and really just getting into the nitty gritty of why people are aggrieved at like Oberlin University. Now you can. Well, I'll tell you, when I went to undergrad... I thought, this is fine, but the professors here don't have enough ties to Jeffrey Epstein. And I think That's this right, is where yeah. the University of Austin comes <laughs> in. You know what? Don't ask any questions about why mm, solidly 20% of our staff is in the uh, little black book or photographed with Jeffrey Epstein. Don't even bother about that. Just um, come in for your skull measuring classes and don't ask questions. So yeah, tell me about the University of Austin. This is the University of Austin, not to be confused with, I think, University of Texas Austin, a number of similar sounding organizations. No, this is an unaccredited institution with no students yet, announced on Barry Weiss's Substack, Barry Weiss being former New York Times columnist and now a grieved tweeter. And their premise is that higher ed is so broken that they need to make their own school. Conveniently, that own school comes with a lot of funding from a co-founder of the data mining company Palantir. And they made quite a splash when they announced this on Twitter and Substack the other week. Unfortunately for them, it seems like some of their star professors and advisors are starting to drain out of the system. Just this week, writer Steve Pinker and University of Chicago Chancellor Robert Zimmer announced that they would be stepping down from the university of Austin before any classes or planning had even begun. Steve Pinker won't say why exactly he's leaving, and Zimmer says that, quote, the new university made a number of statements about higher education in general, largely quite critical, that diverge very significantly from my own views. So much for the heterodox opinions of the University of Austin. It is already starting to see fractures because these people can't seem to get along. This is an interesting program. It has a lot of interesting concepts. I think one of them is that school applications will be graded by the professors, which as a writer at the Washington Post pointed out, if there's one thing professors love, it's grading. This is really going to attract <laughs> a high tier. Oh, great. Oh, we don't have the SAT. I do the SAT myself. I'm looking at their website right now. And to be clear, this is not accredited yet. People were kind of bashing them on that. But like, I don't know. I feel like you got to start first, right? Like, I mean, you don't get the accreditation right out the gate. However, I don't know if this course will ever be accredited. It's called the Forbidden Courses. And this sounds cool, right? Like, it sounds like the kind of thing maybe you have to show up at midnight, like a guy's wearing a plague doctor mask, that kind of stuff. It's just Harry Potter shit. It's the restricted section. It's <laughs> Well, I think that's probably what it's meant to imitate, right? I mean, so the University of Austin is funded by this Peter Thiel associate, and it, it, it has a lot of this kind of like intellectual dark web energy around it. Although I will note, here's something interesting about the University of Austin. So I guess what I'm trying to say is its initial pitch 
is, I think, at like wealthy conservatives, wealthy tech guys, not only to get money from them in terms of donations, but also to be like, here is your like certificate of heterodoxy, right? Because otherwise it's completely useless except to just be like, yes, I'm I'm spending a summer at the University of Austin. But this is a university that's basically premised on like the intellectual dark web, which is to say like these heterodox people who often have very similar ideas uh, amongst themselves. But what I think is interesting here is that there's a line drawn. Like, we don't go all the way. Like, there's not a Dave Rubin. We don't have a Tim Pool. Notably for Austin, we don't have a Joe Rogan. This is kind of like the A-tier intellectual dark web, right? We got Ion Hersey Lee. We have Arthur Brooks. We have Barry Weiss, obviously. Even David Mamet. It's really anyone, like, any of these professors are people who at one point had an Atlantic column and kind of left under dubious circumstances. I really reject this idea that it's forbidden, right? Because all of these people are extremely platform. Right. You mentioned that these are the A-leagues of the intellectual dark web. And you're right. It's because these people have access to wealth and amplification and they have for decades. Barry Weiss was not fired from The New York Times. She left and got a very lucrative substack. Same with Andrew Sullivan. He left, I think, New York Magazine, I think he was at. So none of these people are like these marginalized voices. And I would love to see like Barry Weiss hire a uh, Palestinian professor here if if we're going to talk about voices that get some pushback, especially from the Weisses of the world. And Yeah, like where's like Ward Churchill? Remember him? That was a professor who was fired for saying 9-11 rock. (laughs) If this were genuinely like equal opportunity fringe, yeah, let's do it. Let's just battle royale, throw them all in. Let's see how we go in a year. But it's not quite that. One thing I think is interesting here looking at their curriculum plan is, so they have a couple of master's programs and it's kind of like, how hard is it to set up a university? It seems pretty hard to me. And it seems especially hard to me to set up like a science research university. So first we have politics and applied history masters coming in 2023. Okay. Education coming in 2023. And then it says programs in technology, engineering, and mathematics. And I was like, God, that sounds hard. You're going to have to set up labs and everything. Launch TBD. So I think they have a pretty long, uh, long runway for this program. I think there seems to be some amount of tech money flowing in already. Now, of course, for those of you looking to really rage out at the uh, University of Austin party school experience, I got some bad news for you because they don't have a campus yet. It seems to be like one house near the University of Texas. So I will say, though, I mean, this is the kind of thing I was just thinking about this last night as these people dropped out of the University of Austin. I mean, this is potentially a story that will keep paying dividends for years and years and years as these people sort of struggle to invent academia anew. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like, you know what? I'm actually looking forward to this, right? Because academia is such a rich well for conservatives poking fun at young liberals saying, oh, the Oberlin students don't like the cafeteria food. That's too woke for them or whatever. Cool. Turnabout is fair play. I want to see somebody. <laughs> I'm looking for the same, hoping for the same for the University of Austin, <laughs> where it's like our, our students complain that our barbecue was not good enough. Just like when they're like at, at Oberlin, like the banh mi is not authentic, that kind of stuff. That's right. <laughs> of course, this comes with the caveat that they need actual students because every time that I look at a tweet from one of the founders about this, it's all like a thousand middle-aged reply guys going, wow, I want my kids to go here. And I've never heard any student actually express interest in enrollment. And I just feel like when someone's like, I want my kids to go to the University of Austin, I want like a little like pop-up window that says what their kids' actual educational aspirations are. It's like, this is Timmy. He's thinking of going for pre-med, doesn't really pay attention to his dad's Twitter account. It's just like, this isn't something that they're marketing to students or young people. They're marketing it to donors and people who wish they could relive their college experience 
experience so that it could yell at a social justice warrior in history class. You imagine this undergrad body being like half groipers and half <laughs> kids whose parents would only pay for college if they went to the University of Austin. There's like a lot of schools like this, but the problem is I think they're not cool and they're not, at least in the, the Barry Weiss sense of things, they're called religious schools, right? I mean, yeah, go, go to, to Liberty go University. To like Liberty University. I mean, there's Hillsdale which advertises very heavily on talk radio. And whenever I see these things, I do think of these students in conservative families, the kids in high school who are like, oh man, I can't wait to go to a normal college. And then it's like, good news, your kid never has to leave this program. And I think it also hits on this idea that, that is something we also see reflected in the CRT stuff about this fear that like the schools are stealing our children away. And my kids are only, only think I'm lame and fusty and out of date because they're getting brainwashed in school. Now, what if I could keep them within one closed system? And that's where the University of Austin steps in. And it's all one house in Austin with TBD science program. Kelly, it's all fun to imagine what the frat houses at the University of Austin are going to look like and that sort of stuff. But do you think the University of Austin is ever actually going to become a thing that exists more than just a, a thing online? I mean, like, define exists, right? Because, I mean, University of Phoenix already exists, right? You can get a degree from there. I mean, there's a million diploma mills. So it's, it's really just such a spectrum of, like, what are you actually getting for your education? Are you actually completing a rigorous master's degree or are you chucking in a couple bucks going to like a weekly Barry Weiss symposium and getting a little printout saying that you graduated kuma sum whatever it's hard to determine what an existing university is when the underlying premise is already so grifty well you know i'm inspired here by the 2006 comedy accepted in which a couple <laughs> students led by justin long i believe this is on netflix i watched this just recently where they take over an abandoned i think mental institution and create their own college because it's kind of like you get to do whatever you want normal colleges are too strict for them and so that was a classic film and they have a lot of fun i think they have a class in like tanning that kind of stuff. And so I think maybe at the University of Austin people, they've hit some early road bumps here creating their own college, but I think they might want to check out Accepted. <laughs> so, Will, it has not been the best month, couple months in court for some of your biggest fans. And I understand that Alex Jones is now in a speck more of legal trouble. What is happening to him? Yeah, speck more. This is the whole enchilada of legal trouble. He lost. <laughs> So this is Alex Jones, folks may remember, was InfoWars fame, was facing lawsuits in Texas and Connecticut over his promotion of the idea that the Sandy Hook shooting was a false flag. This idea sort of unleashed all this harassment on the parents. I noticed one of the parents obviously already grieving the death of your child. Now they've had to move 10 times because of harassment by people who are convinced that they're uh, false flag actors. So anyways, a few weeks ago, Alex Jones lost by default the cases in Texas, which meant basically he and his legal team had behaved so outrageously that the judge said, you know what, you basically, we just can't have a fair trial. So you're just going to lose out of hand. You basically forfeit. And so then this week in Connecticut, obviously the home of Sandy Hook. So it's sort of the home base of this whole saga. The judge there also handed down a default defeat to Alex Jones. So basically he's zero for I don't know, zero for eight on the Sandy Hook lawsuits. And that's pretty much the wrap up. And, and now it, now the only question now is how much he's going to end up shelling out. So that's the question, right? And we don't know exactly how much money Alex Jones has, but we can understand it's a lot. Like he rakes in millions from InfoWars, right? Yeah, exactly. And this is sort of personally for me, the frustrating thing about this whole case is that I think it seems as that like Alex Jones's lawyers, I would say, I would not say these people are like the top flight lawyers. However, they're not just total bumblers. I think there appears to have been a decision made by InfoWars headquarters that it's better off for them to just lose these things by default, which is a very unusual thing to happen that the judge is just like, you know what, I'm done with this crap. You know, you lose. So 
it seems as though the calculation was made that it's better for them to shell out however much the judge is going to order them to pay to the Sandy Hook families versus paying that, losing a trial, and having all of these damaging revelations about InfoWars come out. And so already, I mean, the cases were really, really interesting because already they had introduced a lot of documents about InfoWars. InfoWars employees had talked about this decision to call Sandy Hook a false flag in these depositions. I mean, it was getting pretty interesting. We had emails from Alex Jones's lieutenants, uh, I think including Paul Joseph Watson, saying, hey, maybe this isn't, people may remember as Prison Planet on Twitter, saying maybe we shouldn't be going whole hog on this false flag thing. So now because of this, a lot of that material will never get get introduced to trial. We won't find out, really, the internal InfoWars financials. But at the same time, the whole reason Alex Jones lost his case was because he was doing so much to obfuscate the plaintiff's lawyers finding out anything about InfoWars. Two years ago, the judge had ordered them to follow discovery and hand over these documents, and they had pushed it, ignored it for two years. And then ultimately, among all this other bad behavior, that's why he lost this case. There was also this whole saga, and a lot of it's redacted, which is very frustrating. But uh, And so it's kind of hard to know exactly what happened. But basically, the plaintiff's attorney said that Alex Jones's legal team or people working for him had outright lied in the case. There were hidden ledgers that really showed the, the real money at InfoWars. They brought in a forensic accountant to prove this case. So it was getting heavy, who basically argued that, that these ledgers, when they were produced, had been altered. So, I mean, there was a lot of obfuscation going around, I think, that was meant to prevent the truth about InfoWars' financials from coming out. Right. And I mean, this kind of, in in some ways, is a best case scenario for Alex Jones, right? I mean, he has the money to pay out. We don't really know how much yet. But when Alex Jones takes the stand in court cases, because he's had to, it's disastrous. Like, he was in a custody battle with his wife. And he said that he, I forget exactly what it was, but he made some grave parental error. And his excuse was that he'd recently eaten a very hot bowl of chili and that it had, like, wiped his brain somehow. I don't think he could remember his children's ages. Hell yes. Yeah. (laughs) So this is someone who he benefits from having, he performs, right, in the studio audience. He has a huge staff. He has this character that he acts out. And I mean, I personally find that in itself quite unsavory, but the real Alex Jones is just so unpalatable to a court that it's almost worth the money for them just to say, you know what, just be quiet, we'll pay, do not take the stand. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the theme we kind of keep coming up coming up to on Fever Dreams is these people who behave in ways that involve lying a lot and just really outlandishly, how does that interact with a court system where the judge isn't going to say like, epic memes, sir, you know, I'll let this fly. <laughs> And so that's something we're seeing, obviously, with James O'Keefe, in his case, with his infiltrations of groups, something we're seeing with the the Dominion voting systems lawsuits against people like Sidney Powell, just made up claims about Dominion stealing the election. And it was something that I thought we were going to see in the InfoWars case, but it's now just going to go to the payout. I think that payouts could probably be pretty substantial. That's something that we'll see over, over the coming months. But it is interesting, I think, that Alex Jones just, I mean, this is really unusual that you just totally flunk out of all your lawsuits and the judge just says, this is completely irresponsible behavior, you're out. We were talking about college, and this reminds me of my finest moment. I had a course, and all the homework came from one book. And they said, and the book was like $150, and they said, your homework is 10% of the class. And I said, you know what? I'm not going to buy the book. It paid off. You know, you just make a calculated flunk, surrender the money or the GPA, and, you know, you you just, you coast. Think Alex Jones and you would get along great. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like you're like mine. That's fabulous. 
Okay, all right, Kelly, today we're joined by Robert Silverman, a freelance writer in New York who writes for the Daily Beast. And his most recent claim to fame is that he's an expert on Tim Pool. Are you familiar with Tim Pool? I am familiar with Tim Pool, largely due to Robert's intrepid work. I otherwise do not try to interact with Tim Pool's content online. Yeah, Tim Pool is one of these right-wing internet guys who is somewhat difficult to track because he doesn't, as far as I know, I don't think he writes a lot. And so, but he just pumps out hours and hours and hours every week of audio and visual content. And so, I mean, he's hugely influential, and and I think Robert will get into that. This is a guy who, I think a lot of people outside the right-wing media or people outside of the quote-unquote classical liberal sphere aren't aware of who this guy is. And I think Robert will get into it. Most recently, Tim Pool and his staff came down with a bad case of COVID. That keeps happening. And I wonder whether there is any through line with all these people <laughs> catching this virus. What's funny is like, not only is it that often these people are opposed to vaccination, but they also hang out together with people who are all opposed to vaccination. So it's like what they should do is hang out just with vaccinated people. And then they could kind of avoid having these cell phones. But Ro- Robert investigated how Tim Pool Productions was handling their COVID outbreak. And I think there's a lot of great details. And yes, Joe Rogan is involved. Of course he is. (laughs) Fever Dreams, like all Daily Beast journalism, exists because of the generous support of Beast Inside members, the people who pay to access Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet. Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, plus access to members-only podcast episodes, events, and much more. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com today to see what you've been missing. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. All right. Today, we're joined on Fever Dreams by Robert Silverman. He's a freelance writer and an expert on internet personalities on the right, in particular, Tim Pool. That's not a job you choose. It chooses you. Robert, welcome aboard. Thanks for having me. And thanks for that utterly terrifying description of my beef. <laughs> I like to colloquially refer to it as the shithead And I think that really, that encompasses the wide variety of dinguses and doofuses that I pay attention to by choice somehow, as you said. Genuinely a public service. Yeah, I want hazard pay. I still haven't gotten it yet, but well, the fight lives on. So for folks who aren't familiar, I mean, can you set up who Tim Pool is and sort of where he fits into the the right-wing ecosystem? Sure. Tim Pool actually started out about a decade ago. And the first time Tim Pool got on anyone's radar is because he trundled down to Occupy Wall Street a few weeks after the protest started. According to him, he saw some images of police brutality either on his computer or even on TV, maybe. And he hopped on a bus filled with pluck and joie de vivre and went down to Occupy Wall Street, and he just starts live streaming, uploading videos to Ustream and sharing them. This, at the time, was considered a revolutionary radical act, a democratizing of media that, look, you don't require credentials, you don't require training, you don't require an entire vast media apparatus to be able to bring the truth to the people live, unedited. You just need a guy with a beanie and a phone. 
And I'm making a bit of light of it now, but there was something radical about this notion that reporting could be done in a greater variety of ways, that it could be farmed out to a greater number of people, that you could get a greater diversity of voices. And Tim Pool, in many ways, did become sort of the face of this I, this idea, this concept about how reporting could be done and what the boundaries of citizen journalism might be. So he gets a ton of press. He is named nominee for the Times Person of the Year. Time magazine also called him the eyes of the movement. And, you know, he goes around and he talks about, portrays himself as very much a part, to a degree, of the Occupy Wall Street movement. Not to get too deep into the weeds, but from that, he secures jobs with you know digital media companies. He spends a year at Vice.com, and then he quickly sort of, I guess, uh, according to my reporting and uh, the 30 people who I spoke to who've worked with him over the years, he gets quickly drummed out of Vice, but he lands another plum gig two seconds away at Fusion. After a couple of years, he sort of wears out his welcome there as well. And what he does in following these this stint in digital media is he tries to replicate basically the success of Occupy and say, I'm going to do it, but it's just going to be me, the Tim Pool brand. And over the next five years since he left Fusion, he increasingly, in order to find an audience for the things he says on the right. Tim Pool himself does not, in the beginning, especially parrot particularly right-wing ideas. He places himself, much like he was at Occupy, as just this objective observer. I'm just pointing this camera at the world. Sometimes that camera, uh-oh, ends up pointing out at a softball interview with Baked Alaska. Sometimes it's glad-handing and shaking friends with people at the deplorable. Sometimes it's going to protests, like there's a famous video where he's wandering around a protest in Oregon, and there are some leftists on one side and some far-right people on the other, and he's going up and talking to some guy and being like, people keep saying that the right wing of these protesters, they're filled with white nationalists, and I don't see it. And of course, the person he's asking that to is James Also. For those who don't know, James Also is a white nationalist would show up at Charlottesville within months of that quote-unquote interview with Poole being conducted. So Poole, what he situates himself as is he is not someone on the left, he is not someone on the right. Famously, fans start calling him a milk toast fence sitter because he won't actually take these positions. But what Tim Poole does, in effect, is validate the views of people on the right and on the far right. He interviews a wide variety of some of your favorite alt-right and alt-light luminaries. He talks to Brittany Petneybone. He talks to Mike Cernovich. He chums around with Cassandra Fairbanks in increasing frequency. He hangs around with Lauren Southern. There's a famous photo of Tim surrounded by a slew of white nationalists at a bar in, I think, in Oregon somewhere. And Tim is sort of hiding his head while they're all doing the OK symbol. He can't hide that beanie. This is a classic where he's like, wait a minute, no. Wait a minute. It's the a real re- it's a real record scratch. So you may be wondering, but that's what he does. In talking to, to people like Becca Lewis, who's a researcher from Stanford, and what she explained is that in 2017, that around this time, there was a lot of collaboration with people who were nominally considering themselves or calling themselves centrists and the far right. And it worked to both their benefit. The far right was able to introduce themselves to new audiences. The centrists were able to get a little hint of, say, verve and danger from saying, look, I'm the only one brave enough to do an objective interview with these people who are reprehensible. And over time, that continues to happen. And what we watch happen, and and as someone who's now utterly poisoned my own brain by watching, by my count, probably 200 hours worth of Tim Pool's videos over the years, Tim Pool starts adopting these ideas as well. It becomes less and less about him just saying, well, here's what... Here's what your favorite fascist thinks, and here's what Antifa thinks, and I'm not going to judge, but, you know, maybe the fascists have a point. 
over time, he starts just becoming a mouthpiece for these ideas himself. And as he does so, and as he lurches further and further to the right, he becomes an incredibly popular YouTube. On YouTube, he, I think as of last check, he was probably getting, you know, his views have dropped a little bit as, as a lot of media companies have. He was getting probably about 40 million views on his videos total a month. At his peak, it was probably close to 100 million a month. He has racked up over a billion total YouTube views. He has 3.4 million subscribers across his three channels. It's getting the YouTube ad revenue has made him incredibly rich. There's a recording that I got of Poole having a conversation with now former associates from last September, in which he said that in his best month, he made, or his companies made $600,000 in a month. And 90% of it came from YouTube. His biggest cash cow, honestly, is YouTube Super Chats. Those easily bring like four to $5,000 a night. There's one site that tracks them that I found whose providence I can't really vouch for. But they said in the past calendar year, he's made something like a million dollars from YouTube Super Chats. And, and Super Chats being being the a way to sort of highlight your comments in the YouTube stream. Yes. These are just people who say, I want him to read my question on air, so I will give him $5 or $20 or $100 so that he can see my post in the comment thread on YouTube. And for that, He's made a million dollars in the last count. So, so what you're addressing here, I mean, there's so much material here, and, and I would refer people to a, an August article you wrote for the Daily Beast called How Coward and Phony Tim Pool Became One of the Biggest Political YouTubers on the Planet. I know that there's just so much interesting material in this story. Now, bring us up to date. There was a COVID outbreak at the Poolsville compound. <laughs> What's going on? So Tim Pool on October 23rd, he's been talking about this for a while. Tim Pool's big idea is that it can't just be him on YouTube saying that Antifa is going to come to your door and murder you and the cops will help. That is, those are literal things that he said. He, he needs to build culture, is the way he put it, to inspire the youth of the world to believe in sort of vaguely Tim Pool-adjacent ideas, which are never very clearly laid out. So he has another YouTube channel where he just films him and his employees slash friends hanging around at the nearly $1 million compound that he bought uh, in rural Maryland, and they go skate. They have a compound. With a skate ramp. I love when they have a compound. It's a, a compound for educating the youth. <laughs> they have a skate ramp. They have a skate ramp in the basement and a second skate ramp in the garage. They are very well equipped. And the skate ramp in the garage has a live free or die flag. So that's how you know they're keeping it. So at the compound, they go around and they fly dirigibles and they grill meats and they film Tim skateboarding and all of that. It's very, it's like, imagine the real world, but for people like Luke Rudkowski, the old 9-11 truther. There's one video recently where Sticks Hexenhammer, another far-right figure, shows up. It's just all your alt-right pals hanging out, having a good time. There is something to be said for quarantining them in a building, to be clear. <laughs> well, in this case, Absolutely, that was a mistake. So in any case, he decides, Tim Pool has determined that the way forward is a boulderizing of Andrew Breitbart's old statement about politics being downstream from culture. And he wants, he holds this event, which has a couple of, you know, comedians who are popular with the far right. Ryan Long is one, another guy named Danny Polishchuk is the other. And they go to this billiard club slash bar in West Virginia. And they give away tickets to anyone who is a subscriber to Tim Pool's now website, which probably brings in, I have no idea how much, but he claims he's got thousands of subscribers at 10 bucks a month. So do the math yourself. So he's giving away tickets to this event. The event, of course, does not check the vaccination status at the door. They're in West Virginia. 
where less than 50% of the people in the state have received a vaccine. There are no masks anywhere in a video of the event that I managed to get my, my greedy mitts on. So about five days after the comedy show, a lot of people in Tim Pool's company start coming, testing positive for COVID. They all start getting very sick and very Tim himself gets what he describes as an extremely bad case to the point where he wasn't eating for a day or two and he was up all night and he was having difficulty breathing. He thought he was going to have to go to the emergency room. Tim Pool does what Tim Pool does. He calls some kind of what he described as like an urgent care clinic. And what they said is you should probably come in for more tests because he was doing at-home COVID testing. And then, you know, probably the best course is to rest. Tim is not satisfied with this explanation. So Tim gets his old buddy Joe Rogan on the blower. Yeah, I will say I was struck by Tim calling the actual doctors and they were like, I don't know, you should probably just follow this protocol. He essentially was like, but that's not crazy enough. Look, that's not what big pharma wants you to do is rest and just get a couple of tests. They want you to call even more famous podcasters. That's the normal. That's the real. That's the the best way to handle it. So he calls Rogan and Rogan is saying that maybe just rest. You should take this more seriously is the way Poole describes it. And I think it's always worth remembering that Tim's descriptions of events don't always hew exact little reality. So we're taking his word for a lot of this stuff. I'll get into a little more of that in detail if you'd like later on in the show. But according to Tim, Rogan says basically that you need to get a better doctor than the ones he heard from at this clinic. He finds a better doctor. The doctor prescribes monoclonal antibodies, I believe was the first round, and a vitamin drip. By Saturday, at the end of October, Saturday, I think that weekend before Halloween, he is, his fever and his aches and pains and whatever he was suffering through finally break late that night. And he's feeling a lot better. The next day, he goes back to his doctor and the doctor says, no, you still need to take this course of everyone's favorite, ivermectin, the drug of choice of extremely swell podcasters everywhere. And a large faction of the right that is incredibly uh, scared or uh, worried or, I, I don't know, resistant to getting the vaccine, as well as azithromycin. Neither azithromycin nor ivermectin have been shown to have any benefits by most, like of the credible studies we have so far, these are not benefits for treating COVID after the fact. Doctors he saw, who he will not name, duh, seem, according to Poole, insisted that he take them. I will say personally, I don't know if that's exactly what happened with the doctors, whether he was the one insisting that he wanted it or, that, or he wanted to be able to say the doctors told. I've got to cut in here with this ivermectin, these studies that come out about it, because one of the leading ones was just retracted earlier this month, last month. And it found that as opposed to reducing deaths in patients with COVID, patients treated with this ivermectin and other thing cocktail actually had like a, a multiple of 15 in their deaths. So it was actively, actively killing people. I'm not saying that ivermectin of itself will kill people, but this is so medically inadvisable compared to all the other useful treatments like the uh, monoclonal antibodies, which have been doing great. It sounds like they broke his fever and no doctor worth their salt is going to be prescribing ivermectin. Like, I really wonder what concierge service he got in Maryland that was able to to him. I mean, obviously, he's not going to say. 1-800-PET-MEDS. Yeah. <laughs> Wait a second. Kelly. I see what you're doing there. So Tim gets the Joe Rogan treatment, which yeah, I understand the is they, they call it the, the kitchen sink. Yes. Which could also be called the scientifically unverifiable treatment, right? I mean, we're just going to we're going to throw everything we want at it. And then if I don't die of this thing that has a relatively low fatality rate, then Joe Rogan and Ivermectin have been vindicated. And then Joe Rogan 
Rogan paid for Tim's medical treatment, which is, is still, I don't understand why. Tim is, like I said, Tim is exceed, like the treatment, which I asked Tim about. And I said, Tim, how much did this cost? And then he told me, which I was a little surprised by, to be honest. But he told me it cost about $3,600 in total. And Rogan paid for it. Just imagine him being like, yeah, Joe, I can't really swing this. Uh, give me a second. Yeah, back the skate ramp up right there. He makes that much from a single video posted to YouTube. That is pocket change to Tim Pool. Why Rogan paid for it. Again, we have to return to the, is this true aspect of something Tim Pool said. I reached out to Rogan's representatives. They did not respond at all. And Joe Rogan certainly has not weighed in to either confirm or deny either way. It, it very well could be. Rogan could have been out of the, you know, the goodness of his heart being just said, I'll write a check. And Tim said, yes, because why not? I, I'm not going to turn down three grand, no matter how much my bank is in my bank account, which is not at Tim Pool levels, I'll tell you that much. And in any case, funnily enough, after Tim gets some flack online, I read a story about this for the Daily Beast about Tim and, and Joe Rogan getting on the blower and exchanging healthcare tips to one another. And then it turns out that of the many other people in Tim's company who, for whom this COVID jumped from person to person, I believe Tim paid for a section of their bills and then Rogan covered a few other of their bills as well. So he's just uh, writing checks left and right. One other funny thing about this show. So at this show, Tim has decided that the show was not the place where anyone got sick. How did Tim decide this? When I emailed him, he says he did contact tracing. And so I said, I sort of said, like, what exactly does that mean, Tim, contact tracing? Because, you know, you're a guy in a beanie on YouTube who, as you say, talks about his feelings. Why do you believe that you're capable of doing contact tracing? And he's like, we called people and we locked it down and we know who the first person is, which he does not know at all. I just did a little amateur contact tracing, got out a legal pad, like, do, do, do. <laughs> I mean, basically what it seems like is the first person who showed symptoms wasn't at this show on the 23rd. And so by their account, that meant that they were the first person who got sick and they gave it to everyone else. Now, of course, as anyone who's done any bit of Googling <laughs> during the pandemic knows, the first person to present with symptoms is not necessarily the first person who was infected. But Tim has decided that the venue has been cleared. That's the phrase he used multiple times in emails to me. The venue was cleared. So I asked him, did you call the venue to let them know that they were sick? Now, what Tim didn't know is that I'd actually already called the venue. <laughs> and according to them... Like an episode of Criminal Minds or something. You, you've got this I'm, guy. <laughs> turns out Dr. Frickin' House here. I already called the venue. And they said they were a little skittish on the phone, but they said that someone called them over the weekend. They couldn't say when. So I go to Tim and I say, did you call the venue? And he, he repeats again this phrase, the venue was clear. And so I say it again, like, okay, but did you call them to let you know that you'd had an event here with, according to Tim, 200 people at least, and now a bunch of people who were there are sick. Did you call them? And he kind of repeats this thing about the venue being cleared. And so I just say outright, Tim, it's a simple yes or no question. Did you call the venue or not? And he goes, he gets very mad. And he says, this is the kind of games you play. This isn't a simple yes or no answer, because whatever you do, you're just going to write it the way you want. And then you're going to get lawyers to make it so you can't be sued. You're an evil person. And I was like, Tim, I, I just like he couldn't say, no, I didn't call. The venue. Or he couldn't say, yes, I called the venue. I don't know why. My guess is that he didn't know that someone who works for him had called them. And then when asked, he just sort of got mad about it via email. But Tim, certainly the idea of what seems pretty clear is the idea of contacting the venue didn't seem important to him, nor did it seem important to him that when people started getting sick, 
he didn't feel the need to email those 200 people to whom he gave free tickets and say, listen, uh, even if you want to couch it in, we think that the that the first person who got sick was not at the venue, but a bunch of us have. If you want to get it tested, it wouldn't be the worst idea. That idea never occurred. And during this performance, there's a moment where his producer gets up on stage and basically congratulates everyone who's not vaccinated as fighting the good fight against the evil fascist oppressors. And I asked Tim about it. And I said, Tim, your producer said this on stage. She was applauded by your crowd. Do you agree with her? And he said, yes, he does. You would think for a crack investigative journalist, uh, contact tracing wouldn't be that hard for him, but... (laughs) (laughs) I know, I just like, wait a second. It's one of these things where Tim, I don't think he knows what he doesn't know, is I guess how I would put it. And when he gets confronted with things he doesn't know, it makes him, by all appearances, very upset. Look, if I got sick with COVID and I were in, you know, various public, places, if I went to the store, if I hung out with friends, the first thought that I would have would be like, I don't know when I contracted this. I don't know if you're infected, but I just wanted to let you know for safety's sake, because the idea that I might have made someone else unwell would haunt me. I don't think Tim, uh, Tim, by the actions shown (laughs) in this little episode, it wasn't a concern to him. Caring about people and sharing diagnoses, that's like basically socialism. You got to be a rugged individualist. So that's the latest on the Tim Pool gang. So Robert, as long as we have you, you've also done a lot of reporting on Barstool Sports, saluting the stool and stars. And Barstool Sports founder Dave Portnoy, who styles himself as, or whose fans style him as El Presidente. Dave Portnoy is now, I mean, he's massively influential, both among sports fans, among dudes, among the rising species of Barstool Republican. But he's also in some very hot water over the past few weeks after a Business Insider report from Julia Black detailed some, people kind of have to read the story to understand exactly exactly what the descriptions are, but certainly uncomfortable, I think brutal sexual encounters. New York Magazine is also working on a story about him that's going to come out soon. So what do you think is going on with Barstool these days in light of these revelations? And where does Portnoy go from here? Uh, Running for office, clearly. Yeah. I mean, honestly, we've heard chatter. Yeah. I joke, but I'm also not joking at all. I think if he actually had like a mind to run for office, I think he would do quite well among a certain segment of the population. The thing to know about Barstool is like, yes, these allegations are horrific and terrifying. And I think what the hardcore Barstool fan or really the hardcore Dave Portnoy fan likes about him is that right now he is going around smearing every single person, even vaguely associated with this story, with insane, truly paranoid speculation. Like he's been alleging that actually the Business Insider article was somehow ginned up by Steve Cohen. Be possibly, maybe, because Steve Cohen, the billionaire hedge fund manager and owner of the New York Mets, had investments in other hedge funds that lost a lot of money during the GameStop incident. And Portnoy was somehow hyping GameStop as a stock to buy. And therefore, this is Steve Cohen in league with the reverse vampires working to bring down Portnoy at Business Insider. That may sound like I'm being hyperbolic or glib, but that's the nutshell of what he's now alleging. He has been posting like books from the reporter Business Insider's mother, that because she's a reporter, also somehow clearly the reporter had an agenda. It is like his rants. He dug up old tweets from the reporter where she said some things critical of Trump. And because he interviewed Trump, therefore, this is all an attempt to destroy. So that's what's going on with them right now. And like I said, uh, he should probably start with a, you know, a Massachusetts race, maybe governor, and then he can work his way on to national office. 
I didn't realize how much of the Barstool fandom was kind of like Gamergate-y. Like, I was watching just sort of the, yeah, the coordinated harassment against not only this reporter, but just really anyone tangentially involved with Business Insider. And it's like, it is genuinely mob-like. I didn't realize that was so formative for that fan base. I think you're absolutely right. I wrote this story about the harassment campaigns that Barstool engages in. And they give themselves just enough distance to claim that they're, they're not actively encouraging people to harass anyone who posts a tweet critical of them. But it is the thinnest of big leaves. Like they write up blogs about the harassment campaigns and call them like these are great moments in Stooley history. Like it is very clear that there's an entire fan base who is desperate to praise and win the affections of the of their of their parasocial buddies on Barstool. And one way they can do they feel that they can do that is by taking it out of people that Barstool deems enemies. That's women. At various other times, it's been people of color. They had a rotating series of blogs back in like 2015 about how it would be a good idea for people to run down Black Lives Matter protesters who are camped out on the highway. The really fascinating thing about Barstool that I don't think enough people get is that like the actual blog where some of the most like really out there stuff is, nobody reads the blog. It gets a very minimal number of readers. They are at this point influencers. They are an influencer company. And so, of course, the fan base is incredibly toxic, as all influencer-based fan bases are. Including Fever Dreams. That's right, yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. The Fever Hive? Yeah, don't mess with the Fever Hive. Fever Dreams, army rise up. <laughs> yeah. One important thing to remember is you think, like, well, why are people harassing, like, the possibly now the mother of a woman who wrote an article about Portnoy. Well, because they're influencers. And influencer fan bases react in very different ways than, say, people who are readers of any number of media companies' content, whether it's like news or opinion or even just blogging or whatever. They don't develop this need to attack, defend, because what Portnoy has done from the beginning, this goes back to 2012, is he's made it clear that any attack on him or his website is actually an attack on the fan. Like they are criticizing you. Well, and Portnoy said this during a recent live stream. Like it's not just like when they come after me for allegedly violent sexual encounters and possibly sexual acts that were done without consent. Actually, Portnoy says straight up that they are actually attacking you and they think you're stupid for supporting us and liking us. And so that has been hardwired to the way that Barstool has built this following from the beginning. And of course, that's also a very Trumpian thing, right? Because the parallels here are obvious and have been pointed out a lot. But I think a lot about, especially in the end of the 2020 election, how often people would say there were these image memes of Trump where it would say things like, they're not coming after me, they're coming at me because I'm between you, the Trump voter, and the left. They're coming after me because like, I stand in the, I'm the one standing in the way of them attacking. Tim Pool, just to bring it a little full circle, does this as well. This is from one of his live broadcasts last week, but it started making the rounds over the weekend where he goes on this rant and he says, and this was because of an article in the New York Times talking about the FBI seizing information from Project Veritas. That was the impetus for this rant. And what he said was that if Black Lives Matter decides to protest you, and he's pointing at, looking at the camera and he's pointing at his audience, if Black Lives Matter protests you, then the police are going to come next they're going to kick in the door and they're going to bash your teeth in because Black Lives Matter has decided you're a racist. Obviously, very tight allies, Black Lives Matter and the police. And, and the cops. Look, the police force, according to 
pool has now been denuded of all the good officers who quit because of COVID mandates and the calls to defund the police. And so now all that's left are people who will just follow the rules. And secretly, those rules are being run by Antifa. That's what's lurking under the beanie. (laughs) Okay, so Robert Silverman, thank you so much for joining us on Fever Dreams. Where can people find you? You can find my stories at The Daily Beast and elsewhere. If you want to hit me up on Twitter, I'm at Bob Sayetta, B-O-B-S-A-I-E-T-T-A. And if you're real nice, I'll tell you the story behind that name. And, And one thing I would like to add, I know that I write about things and people that often attract mad fan bases and make people mad. And I get that. But if you want to have an actual conversation with me about any of this and you're nice, my DMs are open and I'll talk to anyone about this. All right. Standing offer, folks. DM Robert. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see who takes you up on that. All right, Robert, I think we could talk about this all day. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. And now for Fresh Hell, the segment where we tell you the worst thing that's coming up on the internet and why you will not be able to avoid it. Will, you found maybe the worst January 6th documentary out there, which is really kind of an achievement. What are you watching? Yeah, I have to say, I don't think I've ever been this excited for a fresh hell. I changed up our entire production schedule today because I was like, everything has to change. I just learned about this movie. This is a listener submission. I I should say, shout out to the listener who sent this in. Okay, so last week we talked about Patriot Purge, Tucker Carlson's documentary about the January 6th riot. But I have to say, Patriot Purge looks like garbage compared to this new movie I'm going to talk about. Oh, this is the Criterion Collection of of January 6th revisionism. Patriot Purge was really like, I want to inject some conspiracy theories in. I want to whitewash some rioters, but I don't want to lose advertisers, whatever. This movie is going for it. This is a movie called Capital Punishment, the movie. Now that's capital, like a U.S. capital with an O. So Capital Punishment is the brainchild of Nick Searcy, who's a sort of Hollywood character actor. People may know him as a guy who would, not exactly his role, but the the kind of role he would have would be like, my God, that's Jason Bourne. He's kind of like a guy, like a deep state looking guy. People may remember him as Raylan Givens' boss in the FX show Justified, who would say things like, Raylan, you you blew up the coal mine. You got to do some paperwork. So (laughs) That was kind of his role on Justified, but he's also extremely red-pilled. He's made this movie called Capital Punishment, and it comes out on Thanksgiving. So, you know, if you're sitting around with your family, oh, and I'm I'm not liking the football game, I don't want to watch Dune. Well, you can watch Capital Punishment for $9.99. So this movie opens with, the trailer opens with a lot of shots of the riot. And, you know, people being like, oh, why are they tear gassing us? Cut to, this is kind of stuff we've seen before. But then it cuts to Nick Searcy in full cowboy gear, kind of a gentleman cowboy. He's wearing like a kind of a cowboy blazer. He's got an ascot on. It's a wardrobe choice, definitely. This guy bought all the the points on Red Dead Online. (laughs) And he's outfitted his cowboy. He kind of shows up and he's like, I was at January 6th. And the media is not telling you the full story. And then cut to shots of him. He sort of seems to be bringing riot suspects to the campfire and they're dressed as cowboys and they say how innocent they are. So this is a pretty impassioned, I think this is a personal project of his. I got wind of this when I was at a QAnon conference and people were saying that they were being interviewed for it. And so now I'm seeing this project come to fruition. A couple people who appear in his conspiracy 
Theory documentary. SNL, former SNL star Victoria Jackson, who is deep, deep in Trump stuff. A gentleman named MAGA Hulk. Brief introduction to MAGA Hulk. This is just a hugely swole guy who I think is from California. And I think his claim to fame is that Benny Johnson, I think, met him at a protest once. And he was like, I'm MAGA Hulk. And now he's on the circuit. That's all you need in that circle. You know, you just need like a Twitter handle and like a, a one weird bodily feature. Yeah, exactly. You need a, an alias, right? I think the, the selection of guests here sort of tells what Nick Cersei's up to. Because you can say, well, how red-pilled is Nick Cersei? How wild is this video going to get? And the answer is pretty wild. Because he interviews not only Michael Flynn, who we, we know is a big QAnon guy, but also Millie Weaver, who is a former InfoWars reporter. Her claim to fame was she was arrested after coming up with her own half-cocked documentary. She claimed the deep state was after her. They didn't want the truth to come out. Turns out she had allegedly stolen her mother's cell phone. So she's actually arrested for theft. I should say the charges were later dropped. So she's in the clear. But this looks like a pretty wild documentary. You know, people often ask me, they say, Will, oh, should I watch this movie you've talked about here on Fever Dream? Should I watch Roe v. Wade? Should I watch Patriot Purge? The answer is no. Most of these movies are incredibly boring, but this one looks like it rocks. And I say that for two reasons. Number one, it seems like they do a lot of reenactments. There's a scene in this trailer where someone is Simone Gold, who's the head of this kind of pro-Ivermectin group who was arrested during the riot or after the riot. She's kind of narrating the FBI raid on her house. And Nick Cersei's kind of like miming like he's holding a rifle. So I think he's like playing the role of the FBI agent. And then also this whole thing is soundtracked to the kill all the things that I've done, which people may know as the I've got soul, but I'm not a soldier song. <laughs> it's just like inexplicable where people are like, yeah, yeah. So then we broke into the Capitol. It's like, I've got soul, but I'm not a soldier. It reminds me of like a bad like graduation documentary, right? Where you've got like everyone's like their football highlights and the class pictures. And that's the song that you play in these like uplifting montage reels. But it's just people like storming the Capitol, people breaking windows. And it's it's like, what the hell is Vitamin going on? Vitamin C's graduation plays the guy yes. steals the podium <laughs> yeah i mean friends I, forever <laughs> i am genuinely very excited about this i know some people will say why are you doing free promo for nick cersei well the audience here is i don't think there's a huge overlap but i don't know this movie looks like it rocks i've got to read the testimonies on their site because it's great there's one it says it's a hell of a movie and it's attributed to alan k no last name hollywood veteran it's like yeah it Alan Kay, who can absolutely put his last name to this endorsement, he says it's great, you know? The other endorsement they have is Epic by a pastor of Godspeak Cavalry Chapel. So ringing endorsements, the critics are going wild. And yeah, I think if, if we can get blurbed on this. <laughs> I like that they don't even attach their names to it, but it's also like the blandest things. Like, I like the movie, Will S., you know? <laughs> For protection of the source, we cannot give his full name, but he says it was epic. This really looks wild. I think a lot of the other the January 6th conspiracy documentaries had too many cooks in the kitchen. I think there were too many people who had their reputations on the line. But Nick Cersei is just going for it. And, and he's going to lay it out. He was at the riot, although does not appear to have broken any laws. He hasn't been charged with anything. And, you know, this is sort of like, in a way, sort of his home movie from his trip to Washington, interspersed with inexplicably a bunch of people dressing up as cowboys. This is one man's pure, uncut vision. He doesn't have to worry about Fox News donors or ads. He can just give it his all. And if that means using a very probably unlicensed killer's song, he doesn't <laughs> care. He's just he's just rolling with it. Good for him. He's an auteur. Let's remember, the killers were Bush supporters, so you never know. 
I think we want to get Brandon Flowers if he's the new Ariel Pink. (laughs) He too is at the riot. We shall see. Man, what a way for me to learn, huh? On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some awesome reporters and other colleagues at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics, popular culture, and other overfed, underdeveloped institutions. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcasting app and share the show on social media or at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer and Swin is at Swin24. Come say hello. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian Demiglio. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.